Hello, and welcome to the third episode of my podcast, Rural America and COVID-19. Today is December 17th, 2020. My guest today is Jamie Cruikshank. Jamie is the superintendent of the Norwood Norfolk School System here in St. Lawrence County, New York. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thank you. I wanted to start by asking you, you're the superintendent here in St. Lawrence County for the Norwood Norfolk School District, which includes an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. I know there are many challenges, but to start us off today, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced and are facing in running a school district during this COVID-19 pandemic? That's a, uh, that's a large question, uh, and I, I do appreciate you asking it. When I reflect on, on all the challenges that we've had in the last few months, uh, I, can, I can break them into categories. I believe logistics of reopening and keeping the school open has been, has been consuming with DOH and uh, SED mandates and requirements and changing regulations constantly have, have forced us to bring a lot of people together quickly, form plans, then edit plans, revise plans, change plans, and again, uh, th throughout all of this, implement plans. So logistics have been very difficult. Health and safety is a priority. This has been challenging, ensuring that the school is safe for our children. Meeting the requirements is one thing, uh, set the requirements set up by Department of Health. However, the confidence that the community has in us um, and the, for the care of their children is paramount. We can have all the precautions and regulations in place, but if the, if the community doesn't trust that we're doing everything we can, then, then our, our, really our efforts are for naught. Academics, uh, we have an institution that hasn't changed or seen dramatic change since centralization in the 1950s. That's 70 years of consistency. Uh, seemingly overnight, we've turned that on its head and introduced a whole new world of, of remote instruction. Uh, food insecurity is a challenge. Uh, many of our families struggle. Their cupboards uh, might get slim having children home more often. I think it's exposed a real weakness in rural America and, and the dependence that we have, our families have, on the food provided by either school systems or, or food pantries or whatnot. We've faced challenges, monumental challenges with personnel as, as groups of our employees become quarantined in order to continue offering in-person learning, we, we, have to, uh, we have to cover, we have to stretch, stretch our employees thinner and thinner. Finances, finances are always a struggle, but many of our rural school districts, uh, very similar to Nord Norfolk, are heavily dependent upon state aid. And, and the basic premise of state aid, there's, it's twofold. It's one, to encourage collaboration and shared services, but it's also uh, a mechanism that we have for leveling the playing field so that wealthy districts and rural poorer districts have a level playing field. 
now, nor Norfolk, we depend on 70% of our revenue to come from state aid. With, with the closure beginning last spring, this is challenging our state to be able to equitably provide for our schools. Uh, there's been hints and, and rumors that up to 20% of our aid will be reduced. This current school year in the enacted budget for North Norfolk, that's $3.5 million. Uh, I, I don't have a mechanism to make up that, that amount of money. There, there's, we would become either financially insolvent or we would reduce, 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 and possibly become educationally insolvent. If, if that reduction, that threat of reduction of 20% and aid comes to fruition, we would face a level of state funding for their public schools less than what we had in the 1940s. So, so those are the big things that we're working on right now. And if you give me more time, I could probably come up with a few others. But that's what I see as challenges currently in, in running a school district, any school district in, during a pandemic. Let me ask you some questions about what you just said Jamie. So first of all, money. I think you and I have talked about this before. I will disclose that Jamie and I are partners on a, on a research uh, grant that the St. Lawrence Health System has through the, through the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Uh, Jamie, I'll also disclose to you now, I don't know if you know this, in my 20s, I spent five years as a public school teacher, uh, three of those in the U.S., two of those uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer in the, in the developing world in, in the South Pacific. But in the U.S., I was a an inner city LA high school teacher. And so I remember still very well how under-resourced we were. And I wanna ask you, I have a number of questions based on what you just said. The first is about finances. So 70% of Norwood Norfolk's operating budget, you get that from state aid. The money for schools that comes from our county comes from your the taxes you can raise in Norwood Norfolk from your local uh, real estate base. My question is, in a district like Norwood Norfolk's, where 70% of the money comes from the state, but a significant chunk comes from local tax revenue, are you at a disadvantage relative to wealthier districts? And are you at a particular disadvantage during a pandemic in which many businesses in rural America have closed? Certainly, uh, we are. Based on community wealth values, we, we, we bring in uh, through the local tax levy, oh, about 30% of our overall um, revenue. However, any increase to our tax levy really comes to compensate any deficiency at the, in the other revenue stream, which is state aid. So for example, a 1% increase in the local tax levy for Nor Norfolk would bring in an additional $64,000, which sounds good. There are wealthier districts where a 1% increase in the tax levy might bring in 300,000 or maybe $3 million in new, new monies. So when the, when, the, when the state government looks at reducing state aid, some districts in wealthier areas can easily make up that difference of, uh, of, of funding in the, from the local tax levy. So just if, if, if you take two different districts, uh, one from a wealthier area, and then compare them with a reduction in, in my taxes. So if both of us 
uh, or I'm sorry, if we both of us experience a, say a $200,000 reduction. Well, if, if we had to make up that difference, for me, that would be almost about a two and a half, almost a two and a half percent tax levy increase. In another district, that might only be a quarter tax levy increase. So there's certainly a bias against poorer districts when you have laws on, on the books, such as the tax cap law, which, which sound great and, and make good headlines, but it certainly hampers our, our efforts to support the programs that we, we need in order to, uh, you know, basically the education of a child in New York state shouldn't depend upon their zip code. And right now, how the state funds schools, it does. Um, it certainly does. And I don't know, you mentioned you were a teacher in, uh, in Los Angeles. That's awesome that, uh, that you dedicated some, some portion of your life to giving back to and serving children. I think, I think uh, inner cities have their struggles, such as where you were with, with funding and resources. Uh, New York City is our comparison, uh, comparison in New York State. The combined wealth ratio for New York City is at a 1.0. That's, that's like an average for New York State. Uh, Nor Norfolk is a third of that. So the combined wealth ratio is, is, is not just your, your property wealth, but it's also your income wealth. So, so they, they, they have a calculation and it comes out to be the combined wealth ratio. Ironically, uh, we're near the bottom of the income wealth, uh, the combined wealth ratio of New York State. As I mentioned, New York City is at a one. There's no top on that. There's, there's districts that are at a five, a 10, a 200, when you look at the combined wealth ratio. So those districts have no problems in raising local funds if any is reduced from their state funds. So that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> Jamie, I, I asked it as a long-winded question. That was actually an, an excellent answer. I want to ask a little bit more about the combined wealth ratio. You've got Norwood Norfolk has a combined wealth ratio of about 0.33, right? Like about a third of, of one, roughly? Uh, approximately, yes. Okay. And you have very wealthy districts that may have triple figure combined wealth ratios, 100. You, you mentioned the, that you, you said 200 as, as an example. Can you give us a practical sense, our, our listeners, of how the resource gap looks when you compare a wealthy district versus a poor district like Norwood Norfolk is how, is how things play out for your kids, both in general and then in particular during the pandemic. Well, I'll give you a very, I'll give you a task. This is, this is a pretty um, easy, easy thing to accomplish. Select a, a, a district that you may believe may be a, a wealthier district that, that has solid property values and what you would suspect to be um, strong incomes in, in their populace. Go to their local high school page and search for their course catalog. Take a look at all the offerings they have. Then, then compare that with a rural school. That will provide the best evidence of the differences in resources. We offer one language. We offer some advanced coursework, college placement coursework, and, and I truly believe our, our students excel um, and, and have, have a fantastic education here. But we're competing against districts that are offering four or five languages that, that have a robust 
um, robotics program. We have a fantastic robotics program for what we can afford. When and and just just to kind of draw it back to the level of uh, or the, the discussion involving funding, every school district, poor, wealthy, and everything in between, receives state aid. Different levels of state aid, but they all receive some form of state aid. They all get a slice of of the pie, so to speak. Um, obviously, um, by design, students who, or I'm sorry, uh, districts which are uh, have, have less resource availability receive more aid. When there's a reduction, that reduction is also greatest where, where they're giving it away the greatest. So if they reduce aid, the, the reduction comes greatest to the schools that receive the most. So if everyone has a 20% reduction in their aid, a wealthy district, 20% may not be that much, but it is something where in a small district, it's a, or in a poorer district, it, it may be a, a tremendous uh, a burden that they cannot overcome. And so really the only way to reduce costs to meet that gap, if you cannot raise it locally, is to reduce programs and people. Let me ask you a question about something else you said. So you mentioned a lot of your families are struggling with food insecurity. That's a problem across our county and across poor places everywhere. And it's actually often, for those people who don't live in rural America, it, it comes as a surprise to many people who think, who th have the old image of rural America's farmlands and uh, you know vegetables and fruit on every table. It's, it's actually not the case. We have... Uh, 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 more food insecurity in rural America than in non-rural America. We have a tremendous number of our people living in what are called food deserts, where they're at least 10 miles from the closest grocery store. How have you been able to continue or, or have you been able to continue providing free meals to the families and the kids who need them during the pandemic? Fantastic question. Uh, I believe one of the things that the pandemic has exposed is uh, the reliance that many of our families have on uh, food distribution, whether it's through a food pantry or a, uh, a public school. Uh, we have we have a lot of in before pandemic times. We had uh, a large portion of our students who participated in our lunch program. Now. We, we, we are under a, a slightly different program that we're able to offer free meals for all students, which is, is fantastic. It is a federal program and it's, it's a lifesaver for many families. So if a child is in person and they're here for you know the typical day, they have access to both breakfast and lunch free. However, we also recognize that many of our families uh, selected uh, remote learning models. And we also have some, some uh, limiting factors which prohibit us from bringing all our students back in who wanna be here. So we have hybrid schedules. With that, we, we, we recognize the need that many of our families who needed access to food um, weren't coming in our doors. So we have a food distribution day. It's, it's only an hour. Uh, 1130 to 1230, typically on Wednesdays, where we offer 
any family who has a child 18 years old or younger, whether they're enrolled at Nord Norfolk or not, that they can come and they can receive up to seven lunches and seven breakfasts. And this last week we had 400 students um, that selected either, either five lunches and breakfasts or seven. We, we offer two different uh, options, either, either five or seven lunches and breakfasts. If you, if you look at 400 people, seven lunches, seven breakfasts, that's almost 5,000 meals that we distributed within, within an hour. And that doesn't include all of the meals we continue to serve during the day to in-person students. So I would say we've, we've done a fantastic job providing a resource to our families, but, but I still don't think it's enough. Uh, I, I, I think we have many families that, uh, that that is their main source of, of food for, for their families and their children. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not the picturesque Norman Rockwell uh, country living, everyone lives on a farm mentality. There, there, there are food deserts up here and there is food scarcity in that many families don't have the resources to adequately provide for their, for their families. So, so we see a lot of dependence on this uh, with our families here. And that's, that's good that we can provide this for them, but, I know that uh, our food pantries are also being stretched um, across the North Country to provide resources for our families. Our official, I just looked at this yesterday, we have 30% of our kids in St. Lawrence County living below the poverty line, which is a huge number. I've talked to people who work with kids across the various districts of the county who say, who have told me informally that the rate of the number of kids living at least close to the poverty line is probably even a lot higher than that. I've heard estimates as high as close to 50% of the county living at least close to the poverty line for our kids um, and for whom food scarcity may be an issue at points. Um, just a quick question. Does that number, uh, it, it'll be a pair of questions, but the first question, does that number seem about right to you? I mean, I know I'm asking you to talk beyond your own district now. Just give me a sense from the county as a whole. I, I believe that many of the metrics used to determine poverty levels may be flawed. I think we have many, many families who, who are what I would classify as working poor. They want to work. They work two, maybe three jobs and are still near or below the poverty lines. Um, so no, that, the numbers that you presented to me uh, aren't shocking. No, it's not a surprise to me to see or to hear numbers upwards of 50%, 60% of our students living at or uh, below a poverty, poverty line. So if you have numbers like that, and you have now, I looked on your website, about a quarter, I believe, of your students are remote. Is that, is that correct, roughly? Um, roughly, we're, we're closer to about 30% across, across our three schools. Okay, so 30%. And now you have the issue of, which is a huge issue in rural America. And this is an issue that's pretty well publicized, which, you know, of course, both of us know about. It's the problem with broadband and a lot of our kids not having 
good internet access. I will tell you that in order to do this podcast, I'm on a hotspot because my regular wife, I wouldn't pull this off, but a hotspot is expensive. You do a great job, by the way, on your website of pointing out the expense of the average expense in St. Lawrence County of a hotspot. Um, it's about $700 a year. So how are there a lot of families who just don't have the ability to, to do remote learning, who, whose kids don't have broadband, who can't afford a hotspot, who maybe not don't even have a car to drive to a McDonald's or somewhere else where there is public Wi-Fi available? Are, are there kids who just can't do it? We do have some families in, in our community that, that uh, connectivity is a major obstacle. Uh, I, I, I believe it's fewer than what some of our, my, my counterparts in other rural areas have, uh, have, ex have expressed, but yet we still have a, a, a strong number of families that need support. We provide now, um, you mentioned you were on our website. We provide, uh, they're called Kajit mobile hotspots to families that request them. And they're not, they're not a great solution, but they do uh, provide a small level of connectivity so that students can access documents. Videos, it's a little harder. So if they're using a Kajit to join a class, it's, it's not as, uh, you know, usually they turn their video up because that eats up the, the, the bandwidth. But it is a solution we can provide. We, we're fortunate. We have two public libraries where, where there is Wi-Fi access. Again, it's not, it's, it's not uh, the final solution. I believe the final solution rests in, the, in, in maybe a, a larger government stance that the discussion of, of connectivity in, in rural America has been a discussion for at least 10 years, and we've seen relatively little action. We do have families that live on roads that don't have even uh, the capability, not that finances are, are the obstacle, but having a cable to plug into is the issue. Um, but of course, we do have financial uh, barriers as well. So this district has tried to uh, at least uh, point out where there is, there are places such as libraries um, or local uh, rest, uh, restaurants. You mentioned McDonald's. Uh, that's, uh, you know, in the community next door to us. But we do have some areas where they can get Wi-Fi right in our, our parking lot. They can sit and, and uh, connect and download their homework and upload their assignments type of thing. But uh, it is an obstacle. It's a barrier. I don't. I, I. I. don't think it's an obstacle. I think it's a barrier. I think there. There are some solutions. They're not perfect solutions. You're, they're not going to be. You're not going to be able to stream movies or Netflix on on our Khajiits, But you will be able to access your uh, your Google Classroom. So we're trying. Uh, but I think. I think again. It's a. It's a discussion that's larger than just North Norfolk. It's a larger than St. Lawrence County. It's a, it's a state and, and national problem. They know, we know it's a problem. It's been talked about, but we, we've seen relatively little movement to address it. What about, we already know that rural students have lower, lower rates of college enrollment and, and degree completion than non-rural students. Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to end up making this disparity even worse. 
we've experienced uh, throughout this pandemic that that many things have been accentuated. Barriers, existing barriers that were there before the pandemic, are now accentuated afterwards. For example. Um, what was a barrier may now be a roadblock. We've already discussed some of these, you know, connectivity, food insecurity. Uh, I'll also bring up mental health and stability. Um, they're all barriers to uh, success. And if success is, is measured by college enrollment, then yeah, it, that's a barrier. The pandemic has perhaps placed resources further away from the need. I'm sure in the healthcare system, you've undoubtedly experienced this with access for your patients. It's no different. You're a resource for your patients in healthcare. We're an access for our parents to education and for for their children. So yes, I I do believe the pandemic is going to make the disparity of college enrollment and and access worse. But it's not just, uh, that disparity is not just in college, uh, access, enrollment, completion, degree completion. We have many students who seek vocational training opportunities, uh, normal barriers, which have always existed for students on the pathway to graduation, on the pathway to jobs, and the pathway to careers, are are now accentuated. They're now seeming seemingly like roadblocks. Um, so it's the school's purview that we have to continuously support students to navigate these barriers, make sure when they seem like roadblocks that they're not, they're road bumps. But our task, yes, has become more difficult. And I believe that the pandemic, to short answer to your question is, yes, it, it, it will make this disparity or this gap even worse. You mentioned earlier how important it is to have the support and the trust of the community during the pandemic and at, and at all times. And of course, that is obviously true. But I know that as a healthcare provider, one of the struggles I have faced and that my colleagues have faced among some of our patients' suspicion about the pandemic and whether or not it's real. And I've written about this and how I feel like there should have been and should be more local voices involved uh, in communicating with people about the pandemic. I, I think for many people in rural America, at least people I've spoken with, the national voices feel remote. Uh, these are people who haven't really been present in rural America. Um, they're coming from a government that has, in many sectors of rural life, uh, ignored us. And it's been easy for spreaders of misinformation to step into the void and take advantage. I want to know, are you experiencing similar problems? Are there people in your district, parents who you have to spend time convincing that the pandemic is real, that the virus is real, the dangers are real, that all the things you are doing to keep the school, the district safe, are worth doing? Well, uh, good question. The school, uh, our basic premise is to provide an informed citizenry. That's the mission going back hundreds of years. And and when we decided that our our public would vote, that they needed a mechanism to, to provide an education so that they'd be able to intelligently do so. I think, I think whenever there's a knowledge gap, it's filled with something. And I do believe, whether it's national, state, local, um, it's filled with sometimes speculation and self-prophesizing experts. It's easy uh, to go down a rabbit hole on the internet uh, when, you're, when you're looking at looking at just about any topic. It's easy. 
to get off and, and find yourself in a place that's not scientific based. So yes, is, is, is the school involved in a constant uh, messaging? Yes, we, we are constantly messaging proper safety and, and health and hygiene protocols. We're, uh, we're putting it out there. Do we, do we receive questions back? Yes. Many times uh, we do our best to, to inform. Uh, it's for, for many of our community, they accept it and, and trust it. But for others, they don't, and and that's that's their purview. Uh, I think it's it's a challenge, uh, but messaging is constant. Uh, every communication that we send out, it's checked over for our messaging. We have a mission, and we want to to support our families, and we want to keep them learning all the time. Let me ask a question about social distancing. Sure. How is your district doing with this? Are the kids doing a good job? Are they uh, wearing their masks? Are they listening to their teachers? Have you had much of an issue with in-school transmission or have you been doing okay that way? Great question. Um, our students have been amazing. There's some that need occasional reminders, but they are much better about social distancing and masking than most adults originally gave them credit for over the summer when we were planning our reopening. During the planning stages, that was, that was the predominant concern from everyone was, how will you get a child to keep a mask on all day? Because we were adamant from the beginning through advice from St. Lawrence Health Systems and Public Health that providing mask breaks may on the surface seem like a good idea, but in reality, every time you take a mask break has the potential for contagion exchange. So we went under the basic premise of teachers, um, they've always uh, been able to read classes. When you get a classes start to fidget, you have to change your instruction or break it up or give them, you know, stand and stretch. Well, they have to, and we, back in the summer, we knew that they would have to learn how to recognize the need for a mask break. We provided areas in each room so a child could individually go over there. We originally said when the weather was nice that teachers could take classes outside for a proper mask break. What we've seen is that the mask breaks, really weren't asked for by the students. It was the idea that they would need one, not in reality that they would need one. So our students have been amazing. Um, does anyone like wearing a mask? No, but do they all recognize the need and are they all compliant about it? Yeah, we've, we've had a couple, but that, that will challenge and it'll slip down the nose. One reminder, they, they slip it up and, and they move on. So, so I, think, I think our kids have performed admirably and, uh, and truly should be commended on, on really mitigating the, any, any spread of the virus. Young children in particular are less efficient spreaders of COVID-19 and school closures have been found to be effective in, in reducing community spread of COVID-19, but not as much as other NPIs like mask wearing, for example. Um, so, 
what, if any, do you think the impact of closing schools around the county thus far has been on community transmission of COVID-19 here in the county? There's a lot to that, that question. Um, we're learning a lot about viral transmission in the school environment. And we've learned a lot in the last few months. At this time, there have been relatively few viral transmissions linked back into a school environment, meaning that the community spread is much greater than the spread in the school system. Uh, this is actually why the governor's microcluster initiative has actually changed um, from closing schools in red and orange zones. If they were designated in a red or orange zone, they'd immediately close. To now there's a testing protocol to ensure that the school rates are in fact lower than the community rates. Um, our policies and our processes are designed to mitigate any spread within our setting. Masking, social distancing, air exchange, hallway passing, eating. We know that the virus will, and it has, walked into our doors. It's our job through our policies to stop or slow the transmission between people. So, so knowing that the viral spread is, is relatively small in the school building because we have control, we have control over our, our environment through our policies. So, so knowing this, it's relatively small in comparison to the community. Uh, we believe it's safe or safer for our children to be in school than not. And I'm not suggesting that homes aren't safe, but there's other factors. Because there's a significant lack of daycare in the North Country and in rural, most rural areas, if we don't have school open to in-person learning, many of our students would either be left alone or be placed with other children in clusters, you know, small, small daycares or, or just other homes where the parent may be home, where the safety protocols may not be in place. And so reflecting on everything that we've discussed about barriers to children's success during a pandemic and knowing that schools are designed right now to limit the spread of contagions. Uh, I believe it's actually in the best interest to keep schools open. Now, there, there, there would be a tipping point in communities where, where if you have major outbreaks, we need just people to stay home and not, not have any contact. I understand that. But right now, our in-school spread is lower than the community spread. And so that's, that's where my belief comes from. Thank you, Jamie. Um, a lot has been written about um, the impact of school closures on kids, including negative effects on the quality of education, child health, and child development. Can you talk about what these harms are for rural communities in particular? What are some ways that we can mitigate this damage, both in the short and the long term? School closures aren't good. For, on any aspect of education, child health, or development. Concerning education, it's possible for children to learn remotely. We've proven that. But there must be a concerted effort to build relationships, which is difficult to, to do without being face-to-face. -face. We're, we're finding that students who primarily are remote learning are more likely to disengage during a class, have attendance problems, 
ultimately not understand or complete their work. Now, this isn't this isn't a hard and fast rule, but speaking in generalities, that's what we are seeing. So our top scholar list is generally students that are in attendance, but not all of them, obviously. We are concerned that there is a gap in their learning. Uh, however, every school is dealing with this, and we're not we're not alone, and we're not able to just simply close the gap. We won't be able to do this when, when this is all done, when this pandemic is over. I believe it's going to take a system-wide approach to reimagine our school systems, because that gap is, is there. It exists. But my concern for children through this pandemic centers more on their physical and mental and emotional growth. We have children that are isolated. We have children who have food insecurity. We have children who are struggling to make sense and rationalize this, this whole pandemic. They're scared and many of them feel alone. At Nord Norfolk, we're very concerned about our children's mental and emotional health. Both short-term reactionary decisions uh, that, that children make are very concerning. Uh, Long-term health choices that they make are very concerning. Uh, again, it's more difficult to build the relationship piece. What can we do? We can reach out. We can talk with them. We can get them into school if they're, if at all possible. If they're, uh, if they're fully remote, try to get them on two days. If they're on a two-day cycle, get them in for four days. Our teachers and our counselors, our administrators, social worker are reaching out daily, even period by period. This is why we selected the instructional model that we did at Nord Norfolk. We have a synchronized instructional system so that our children who are remote and our children who are in person are in class at the same time. This poses a lot of challenges for our teachers, but we felt it crucial to connect to those that we're not connecting. So if a child who is remote doesn't log in for a class, we call. We call to talk to them. We talk, call to talk to their parents. It's critical that these children have multiple contacts daily with a trusting adult. We've also continuously expanded our offering of in-person learning whenever possible. We started with one system. We changed it. We brought more kids in. Obviously, limiting factors is classroom space, transportation and bus capacity, cafeteria capacity, but if and when possible, we bring students in. And if they select remote and that's their, their choice, then we, we ensure multiple contacts per day. And, uh, and hopefully that can help prevent a slide into uh, mental health instability, um, isolation, anxiety, connecting with, with positive influences like teachers and, and their coaches even though they don't have the sports right now, I view as mission critical right now. Jamie, thank you very much. And um, for all our listeners listening today, happy holidays.